Hi, my name is Ellen Sinai. I'm the most grateful Al-Anon in this room. Hi. Hi. Oh, gosh, look how many of you there are. And you can hear in the back, huh? We couldn't even hear in the front last night. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. I am just delighted to be here. I'm having a wonderful time. We don't get snow where I live much. I went out this morning before everybody else was up, and I was out kicking snow banks, so maybe they wouldn't notice I was a tourist out there, but I had a wonderful time. I want to thank the committee for inviting me. Um, that, it's always an honor to be asked to come and participate in, a, in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and I am most grateful for that. And I'm most grateful for all of my new friends that I've met while I've been here and my old friends. I have, this is really a neat thing. I was in Fort Collins last fall. And um, so there have been a couple of people here that I know. Uh, you aren't all total strangers, and that's just wonderful. Um, what I'm going to tell you tonight is my Saturday, February 17, 1990 story. If I'd told it to you yesterday, it'd sound a little different. And if I told it to you tomorrow, it'd probably be a little different. And it's not because the facts in my life change. But the longer I stay in this program, the, different, the more different my perspective gets. And the more I discover what was really truth and what was really illusion. Um, I also tend to talk a slightly better program than I walk. But I'm allowed to. <laughs> They say experience, strength, and hope. So some of what you hear is my hope. <laughs> Trick is you don't know which part it is. <laughs> That's okay, you don't need to know. <laughs> we have a saying in our room, we say take what you like and store the rest. Um, I need to tell you two things. Not particularly good news on one hand and, and maybe not bad news on the other hand. Um, I love the speakers this weekend. I have really enjoyed them. You haven't seen much of me in here because I've been sitting in this little room next door. Now, I have to tell you a couple of things about that. Coming to Al-Anon was probably the scariest thing I ever did in my whole life. And when I got here and they said, you walk through the little room to get to the, the you walk through the big room to get to the little room, and, um, oh, the Al-Anons, oh, those, the little brown wrens, oh, they're back here. Oh, you, those people that, you know, it takes three of them to have a personality and all that stuff, and I'm not going <laughs> to... We're not going to get into that. Anyway, uh, I didn't, you know, I, I was feeling lower than whale poop anyway, you know, and that didn't make me feel particularly better. It just confirmed my suspicions that I wasn't worth very much. Of course, it wouldn't have mattered what you said. That's the way I was going to feel anyway. Uh, so I have avoided the non-smoking rooms, even though I don't particularly like a great deal of smoke, but I've avoided the small, the smoking, the non-smoking rooms because they are the little rooms again, you know. And by God, I will be in the big room every chance I get, you know, <laughs> with the real sick people, you know. <laughs> and I understood what Jim said today when he was talking about he does his program differently today because today he does it because he wants to and not because he absolutely has to, you know. I chose to go in the little room today. I chose to go to the little room. said, all my friends in the little room, hi. <laughs> They're in there watching. I know they are. We're a very close group in there. <laughs> and to uh, Dorian and uh, Dave just got married ten, ten days ago. 
and they're in the little room too. Hi, guys. <laughs> okay. Um, one of my one of my newest friends is speaking right after me tonight, Tom I. And I had I've heard him speak several times. And I got to spend time with him at a conference a couple of weeks ago. The interesting thing was, in all the times I heard him talk, uh, I liked it, but I, that didn't make much of a connection. The last time I heard him talk, what I realized was that he, his, the way he works his steps in AA are as close to the way I work my steps in Al-Anon as anybody I ever heard in my whole life. And that's amazing to me. But you know what it shows me is, is uh, I have finally taken another little step I came in here listening for all the ways we were different because I spent my whole life either being better than or, or less than everybody else, and I could do it on an instant. I could tell looking at you whether you were better than me or less than me. And when I came to Al-Anon, they said, Sweetie, listen for the ways we're alike and not the ways we're different. So if you're here for your first Al-Anon meeting tonight, bless you. I applaud your courage, although courage doesn't feel like courage. Courage feels like fear feels a lot like fear. <laughs> when you put an action with it, it looks to other people like courage. And when you turn around and look at it in retrospect, damn, I was brave, you know. <laughs> oh, we were real scared. And, uh, and I'm glad you're here tonight. And, and I don't mind being the first Al-Anon that you ever hear, but it'll absolutely break my heart if I'm the last. So please come to another meeting. See, we're not, we're not above using guilt if that's what it takes to get you there. <laughs> Progress, right? Not perfection. The thing, that was sort of the good news. The sort of bad news is that neither Tom nor I are known particularly for being able to get our stories told in an hour. <laughs> so I hope you will bear with us. I'm real glad that I get to go first. <laughs> I like being the warm-up for the AA. <laughs> uh, another thing I need to tell you. When I got here, my sponsor said to me early on, she said, what do you want to do tonight? And I said, well, what I want to do tonight is I want him to come home and watch TV with me. That's what I want to do tonight. It took me years in this program to discover that that was about him and that wasn't about me. Because there wasn't a me when I got here. There was a him and there was an us. And if there wasn't any us, there was no place for me because that's the only place I existed was in that relationship. Um, today, I have gone from somebody... When he used to say, well, what do you want to do? And I'd go, oh, I don't care, whatever you want to do. Just do it with me. <laughs> don't leave me alone. <laughs> I've gone to, uh, you, know, you know how we are, our pendulum swings 180 degrees in the other direction. We see balance as we pass through it, you know. <laughs> on, our <way> to the <laughs> on our way to our next addiction, you know, whatever it's going to be. And I've got some real strong opinions these days. <laughs> you want to watch the hair on my neck stand up. You say to me, oh, look, there's old George, the alcoholic, and his little Al-Anon wife. <laughs> the only thing that makes her an Al-Anon is because she's hanging around with old George the drunk, you know. That is not an Al-Anon. And I've had, to, you know, I've, I've gotten to where those are fighting words for me, by God. You know, I didn't want to be here when I got here. I didn't want to be here before I got here. I damn sure didn't want to be here once I got here, you know. I didn't want to be here. I tried real hard to be alcoholic woman. Not by drinking, God forbid. Oh, no. No, 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 no. I wasn't going to do that. Uh, I was just going to change the way I looked on the outside so I would look like an alcoholic woman. Now, and I could go into detail about that, but I won't do it. 
Absolutely. Because alcoholic women have saved my life. They have absolutely, literally saved my life. But I tried to make them think I was alcoholic because it, it occurred to me that the reason men were in Al-Anon was because they were mixed up with alcoholic women. And alcoholic men seem to prefer alcoholic women. And where did that leave little brown wrens? You know? <laughs> so I thought, I, perhaps I ought to be alcoholic. What I discovered out of that whole deal was that Al-Anons are doomed to sensible shoes. And if you if you don't know whether you know whether you belong in Al-Anon or not, check your feet. <laughs> another way to do it is check your feet. And if you discover your head's in another room and your feet are in this room, you also belong in Al-Anon. Uh, what happens when I get into places like that and I get real crazy with something? This God of my understanding that I found through you. Uh, does these amazing things to get my attention. What happened that time was I was at a conference, at an AA conference, when I made this decision to try to look like I was alcoholic. What God did was put four people in my life who had between them over 125 years of Al-Anon. That's a lot of Al-Anon, you know. And let me tell you something. Those people had what I wanted. They had come to know a new freedom. They didn't wish to shut the door on the past. They had all the promises had come true in their lives. They were able, the most amazing thing to me was that they were, they were a able to, to uh, handle situations that used to baffle them. Lord, more than anything, I want to handle those situations that used to baffle me. Uh, and I decided that's what I wanted. I came back from that conference proud to be an Al-Anon. An Al-Anon, as far as I'm concerned, is a person who has a problem with initially with someone else's drinking. But a person who stays and works the Al-Anon program gets a sponsor, has a committed meeting, works, most importantly, works the steps. That's an Al-Anon. And as such, I'm proud to be an Al-Anon. And I'm proud to stand up here on my own two feet. And thank you from the bottom of my heart for sharing your program with us so that we have a way out of the pit. Otherwise, we would not have a way out of the pit. And I thank you for that. One of the things I enjoyed so much last night were the long-timers. One of my big questions when I got here, and I looked at those 12 steps on the wall, and it said, we admitted we were powerless. I pictured witches sitting around a cauldron, <laughs> you know, devising plans. And where were they? Well, you met some of the we last night. That's some of the we. And I'm, and I'm most grateful to get to meet you. I came to Al-Anon on November 7th of 1981, and for the first time, I accepted somebody's extended hand in, in uh, asking for help. I'd never done that before in my life. I never said there was something I couldn't handle. On October 3rd, since October 3rd of 1984, it has not been necessary nor indeed possible for me to sleep all night with an active alcoholic. <clears throat> That's God's miracle. Before that, my life consisted of sleeping with a great many active alcoholics. <laughs> and you don't have to know how many either. <laughs> the first miracle was yours. The second one was God's. And I, and I know the difference. Um, I cannot diagnose alcoholism in somebody else. Alcoholism is a self-diagnosed disease. And it is a disease. And it's a family disease. And in a... And you can't, my, I have a sponsor who says, well, if they walk like a duck and they swim like a duck and they quack like a duck, chances are real good they're ducks. My parents quack. And I think they're ducks. Um, and, I, and I don't tell you that 
for any other reason except that it helps me understand a lot of the way I am, you know, a lot of the way uh, I, I grew up with. You know, I grew up thinking that there was something the matter with people who didn't drink. I didn't know any one thing. <laughs> we didn't hang around with those kind of people, you know. I came from a family of heavy drinkers. And uh, my mother realized something by the, time I had high, by the time I hit college age that I didn't know. She called it boy crazy. When, I, when it was time for me to go to college, Mama sent me someplace where I, I realized now it was like banishment. She was sending me someplace where she thought I'd be safe. She was sending me someplace where she thought nothing grew and there wouldn't be any of those bad people there that I'd get mixed up with. So she sent me to Lubbock, Texas. <laughs> Some of you have been there. <laughs> well, then you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> there's a lot of nothing there. I mean, there's just a whole lot of nothing. I have a friend in the program who said he lived there for a while and he just couldn't stand it. He said, I had to leave. He said, I tried telling them how hot it was there and they'd all give you that line about, no, it's not that hot here. You know, it's dry and if it was humid, it would really be hot. You know, and he'd say, no, it really is hot here. And they'd say, well, if you stand in the shade, it's not so bad. And he said, you know what? I got tired of lying under my car. <laughs> and he's an alcoholic. Isn't he cute? God, I love him. <sighs> but see, what I know now was that I have an addiction. I have an addiction to mind-altering men. <laughs> I hope you'll notice it's the women applauding. <laughs> we know who you are. And you know who you are. And we love you. <laughs> that's my addiction. I thought it was limited to that, but I discovered that's not true. There's some mind-altering women in my life as well. I love. I don't, if you if you've never been loved by an Al-Anon or a pre-Al-Anon, which I choose to call an alligator. <laughs> if you've never been loved by one of us, you do not know what you're missing. I went back to my 20th high school reunion only because this program gave me the courage to do that. I thought I'd had a bad time in high school, you know, and I wasn't about to go back and, and find out they really didn't like me. But this program has taught me that I have some, there's some holes in my perspective. Uh, so I went back, and what happened was an old boyfriend, you know, that I hadn't seen in, in better than 20 years, and who even went to another school and was older than we were, found out I was coming and showed up at the reunion. And one of my old high school girlfriends couldn't get over it all weekend long. You know, she walked around going, God, I don't understand it. They come from everywhere to see you. I just don't get it. And I said, when I love them, they stay loved. <laughs> we love at a cellular level. <laughs> we love you from the top of your head and beyond to the bottom of your feet and beyond. We love everything you could be. We are in love with your potential. It's so clear, you know, it's just so clear. God, we love you, you know. And, I, and we call it love. I, I, however, have come to have a, a little different knowledge about love since I've been in this program. What I used to call love looks like this. <laughs> I would wake up in the morning and I would try to remember what he, where, you know, if he wasn't in bed beside me, where was he, you know? And when was I going to see he? 
and and what he was going to say and what I was going to say and what I was doing was putting on my mask for the day, you know, here it is. And there was always a current crisis. You know, you always got to have something going. I'm also addicted to adrenaline, you know. I like to keep things going, man, you know, because if, you, if there's a crisis going on, you don't have to think. All you got to do is act. And I don't have room to think about things because I'm thinking about him, you know. I can't waste time with, just let me get through those things. And besides, all those crises that I acted my way through and reacted my way through, I'd get all these pats on the back, you know, and people say, God, she's so strong. She's superwoman. Look at what she can do. Boy, how do you do that? And I'd go, oh. <sighs> it's nasty work, but someone has to do it. <laughs> You know, and 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 you just have to get keep making bigger and bigger and bigger crises because a little's not enough anymore. You know, it takes more and more each time. And I put this on. Okay, here it is. I'm armed for the day. As you will notice, my speech is impaired with this. I mean, I I don't even say what I what I think I'm going to say because I'm thinking about him. You know, and a lot of if you ask me how I am, I'll tell you how he is, or I'll tell you how the kids are. But. It won't be me, because I'm concentrating on this. It impairs my breathing. <laughs> it has a lot to do with my life right here, you know. I am giving up my airspace to this, whatever this is, you know, right now. <laughs> here it is. I don't see well. Everything I see comes right around this. I see this first. I see it as he would see it, you know. Honey, your dad didn't mean that. What your dad meant was da 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 Honey, the kids didn't mean that. What the kids meant was, da -da 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 -da. <laughs> you know, do like this. And by the end of the day, you have this pinching little headache. <laughs> Man, the real name for that is obsession. That is not love. That's obsession. It feels like love sometimes, but it's not. It's obsession. The only place I have found to deal with that is here in these rooms. The 12 steps are the only answer I've ever found to that. And, and I can tell you how many times I said, um, I'm not going to do this anymore. You know, I'm not going to get into another one of these relationships. Or I'd find myself in one and I'd go, how did I get here? I didn't intend to get here. I'm here again. How did I get here? Well, part of the problem is because the N-word never rolled off my tongue. No was never an option for me, you know. My sponsor today will say, Ellen, we're going to practice the N-word now. <laughs> And she'll say, if you can't say no, can you at least say not now? <laughs> sometimes I can and sometimes I can't. What I see now is, back then, there wasn't anybody in here to say no. If somebody offered me a relationship, I had to go for it. Because there wasn't a me if there wasn't a relationship. I did, uh, I've, done, I've done more fourth and fifth steps than I can tell you about. And I'm so grateful that there is such a thing as fourth and fifth steps that I can do to look at this stuff. And what I discovered in one of them was that since I was 12 years old, I have either been chasing after, catching, dating, going with, waiting for, engaged to, married to, divorced from, engaged to, married to, divorced from, somebody, you know. <laughs> I have this hole. I had this hole that walks beside me every place I go. And from the time I was 19 until the time I was, I don't know, it was a couple of years ago. <laughs> I have had to have this hole with me. And if there isn't someone in there, I moan about the emptiness of the hole, you know. If I have to spend time without somebody in there, I'm concentrating on there's nobody here. But trust me, there have not been long places between people here. 
The sad part about it is that they're interchangeable. I always wanted to think he was the one. Well, for right then he was the one. Until he wasn't enough. It's like every alcoholic story I ever heard. More, better, different. You know. I had to throw, at first I was happy chasing after. That wasn't enough. Had to catch him. Then I was happy, you know, then I was happy uh, dating, and that wasn't enough. You know, I got to nail this one, <laughs> you know. <laughs> then I'll be happy when I get married. Then I'll be happy. Well, that was okay for a while, but then that wasn't enough, you know. I got to have kids. Kids are what I need to make me happy. <laughs> Great, let's throw a couple of kids in there, you know. I know what I need now. Now I need a big house. You know, I did the whole thing. I didn't date unless I was married, I've discovered. <laughs> In that same fourth and fifth step, I discovered that since I was 19, I had, uh, I had been involved with seven different men. And there had never been a dating period in there, any place. I got married at 19. Mom sent me up to college to get a degree. I went to get a degree. I went to get an MRS, and that's what I got. And I was very happy with that. Um, I found him. He was 60 pounds overweight and married and had two kids, but that was not, those were not big problems. I had overcome bigger problems than those, you know. No problem for a stepper. If you want it, you know, anything worth doing is, is worth doing well. And if you concentrate on it, this too can be yours. I won the prize. I won the prize. Um, when I did that fourth and fifth step in the process, I started remembering affairs that I'd had that I'd very comfortably tucked in the back of my head. I can hold opposing thoughts in my head and they never touch. <laughs> If you'd asked me what kind of wife I was, I would have told you I was a, I was a good and loving wife because that was my intention and that's the way I needed to see myself. The fact is I had affairs. Thank you, God, for denial that I didn't have to look at that until it was safe for me to look at that. If I had had to deal with what I was really doing, I probably would have committed suicide. But he wasn't enough. I had to keep throwing more and more into this big empty hole. It's been interesting that since I've been uh, unmarried... I haven't had to date any more married men. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> I'm not sure. That with, the, with the involvement of that fourth and fifth step, I came to know that, uh, that I want to be whole and separate. I want to be my own person. I don't want to give away my life anymore. I don't want it. My worst fear I discovered when I did that fifth step was that when I died and went to heaven, God was going to say, well, you had your chance and you blew it, kid. You blew it. I want to do it. You know, I want to do it. I went to the hospital and had a little surgery a couple of months ago, and the lady at the desk said, are you married, divorced, or single? And I said, I'm single. And she looked at me, and she said, you've never been married before? And I said, oh, no, I've been married. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I know how to do married. She said, then you're, then you're divorced. You can only be single once in your life. And I said, yeah, no, this is it. <laughs> For the first time in my life, I am single. And I got me out of the 12 steps of this program and your love and God's infinite grace. The God of my old understanding, I had to pray to for mercy. This God offers me grace like air and gravity all the time. Um, I've been married six months when he hit me the first time. Uh, if, you, if someone hits you and you don't want to get a hit again... My suggestion is that you move out of the way. That is not what I did. See, I had a lot of defects before I ever married an alcoholic. 
I did a lot of things that didn't make any sense before I ever married an alcoholic. Marrying an alcoholic tended to magnify them, but uh, they were all there, you know. And he didn't drink when I married him. What makes me think now that he probably is an alcoholic, besides the fact that his third wife also thinks he's alcoholic, is that I realize in an attempt to control the, the physical abuse, I quit drinking myself because what I, said, what I saw was if I didn't drink, he didn't drink. If he didn't drink, he didn't hit me. So I quit drinking in an attempt to uh, control the abuse. It didn't work, but I tried. It wasn't until I did my first fifth step that I told somebody what it had been like in our house. I didn't tell anybody about that. Unless you've lived there, this is going to sound totally insane to you. But this was sanity for me at one point in my life. If he had wanted me dead, all he would have had to do was wish me dead. We wouldn't even have had to be in the same room. If he had wanted me dead, I would have been dead. That's how much of the power of my life he had in his hands. And I gave it all to him. I gave it all to him. Maybe in the beginning I was a, a volunteer, but at the end I was a victim. And I, you know, I, helpless victim is one of the roles I play best. This program is getting me out of helpless victim. Thank you, God. When I told this lady what had happened the last time he hit me, she said, sweetie, when somebody holds you under a cabin cruiser in 20 feet of water repeatedly, this is not hitting. This is attempted murder, you know. But see, I have a disease called it's not that bad. It's not that bad. You wake up the next morning and you say, well, it wasn't that bad. I guess the reason it wasn't that bad was because I lived through it, you know. I guess if I'd waked up dead, I would have gone, well, that's bad. <laughs> that's pretty bad. The only reason I could live, leave that man was because somebody else came along and said, you don't have to live that way. And I think other people had told me that before, but they didn't add the three magic words on the other end, which are, and I love you. Ah! <laughs> I never was one who could go, okay, I'm going to let go of this one and grab this one. No, 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 no. No, you keep a firm grip on this one till you get a firm grip on this one, you know. <laughs> and then you can go, don't need you. <laughs> Check it to you, guy. And I mean, it was over. You know, when it was over, it was over. He was so surprised. He had no idea. It's over, fella. No, nothing to talk about. You know, it's done. I've spotted the next one. You know, more, better, different. Took me a couple of years to nail him, but I finally did. And uh, uh, we got married. And it was everything I thought marriage ought to be. God, it was wonderful. I mean, we loved each other at a cellular level, you know. We just lived for each other. We breathed each other's air. At night, we would climb into bed and he'd go, Oh, this is the best time of the whole day. You know, the rest of the planet could have been decimated and I wouldn't have cared, you know. Just let me have him, you know. He's the one. My kids, you know. I don't care about the kids. Just give me him, you know. He's the one I want. And it was wonderful. And I knew he drank in bars. You know, I knew he did that. He was doing that before we got married, but it would be different after we got married because then I would fix the right stuff for supper and he'd come out. <laughs> well, the first night that he was late coming home, I did all the things that probably most of us who have waited for a drunk to come home do. I cried. I got scared. Oh, God, I was so scared I could hardly stand up. My knees were shaking. I was so scared. I mean, we're talking my lifeline here. You know, we're talking my substance. My reason for being wasn't where he was supposed to be. And, and I went in the bathroom and I cried because I didn't want him to come home and find out I was crying. So I went in the bathroom and cried. And I lay on the floor and I was sure that he'd seen the three pounds I'd gained. And that was the reason he didn't come home was because I was fat and he didn't love me anymore. And then I got mad. And then I went up front and I said, 
Well, how dare he treat me like this? That didn't last long. That never lasted very long. And then I moved on to the next phase, which was standing at the front window, you know, like this. When somebody was talking today about looking, trying to see where you were, you know. While I was looking at the window, watching the cars. We lived on a freeway. You know, you, you, you know. You go crazy doing that. I was crazy anyway. And, I, and in my mind, I had a picture of this of this guy lying in a ditch someplace, out a country road, you know, and, and he was dismembered, and animals were carrying off parts of his body, you know, and they were never going to find him all, and it was going to be months. You know, and I really got into this thing. Drama is my life. And I was really into it. Then I started spending the insurance money, which is the next thing you do, you know. Well, if he doesn't come back... I'm sure there's enough to bury him. Oh, yes, we'll give him a decent burial, you know. <laughs> I could picture me in black and the kids, you know, do the whole thing. And, I, and, and this doesn't take any time, but I had a long time because he was real late coming home that night. And when he showed up at the door, I was, <laughs> I asked the second stupidest question of all time, which what I said was, where have you been? <laughs> you know, the first stupidest one is, have you been drinking? <laughs> I was into question number two. And he said, well, Ellen, you knew where I was. You know, and I can hold those opposing thoughts. I want to think that he's out there and, and something bad is... I'd rather think there's something bad happening to him than think that he is someplace with other people rather than with me. That was a much more painful thought to me. So I don't want to think about the fact that he's at the trap room. It's the same bar he goes to all the time, you know. He just tonight just overtook him, you know, while he was there. And he said, God, Ellen, you're so upset. Jeez, I never would have upset you. Oh, man, the last thing I'd ever do, honey, is upset you. I wouldn't want to. God, if you'd wanted me home, all you had to do was call me. I'd have come right home. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I should have called. That's a mind-altering man. I believed everything he said. You know, one of the reasons I believed everything he said was because he believed everything he said. You know, and what I bought was his sincerity. I really did. I felt real stupid for a while after I got here and found out how much of that was poop. <laughs> and then I realized that uh, he believed it too. If you're new in Al-Anon, I would urge you to get to as many open AA meetings as you can. I uh, could not hear the alcoholics in my life. I couldn't hear their pain because I'm too emotionally involved with them. And at first, when I came to open AA meetings, what I heard were the people I love up there talking and talking about stuff that we couldn't talk about at home. And now I shared with you earlier what I hear is me. You know, that's some growth. Um, we, we were married for several years, nine and a half years is my record. And I've hit it twice now. <laughs> the next guy that marries me needs to start, you know, start being real nice to me like about the ninth year. <laughs> tends to get a little iffy in there. Um, things were getting bad at our house. Things were getting bad. And, and what we were focusing on was my daughter and you know, the kids. We were focusing on her. And we were focusing. She was eighth grade. And when they're eighth grade, they're nasty. I mean, they're just nasty. Eighth graders really ought to be sent to live. You know, I think that's what they ought to do with, with white-collar crime. Blue collar crime, white-collar crime. I think they ought to put islands someplace and send these guys that that... that took money from places and stuff, you know, without guns, but send them over there and let, make them live on these islands and send all the eighth graders over there. <laughs> oh, I'll teach them. <laughs> I wouldn't do it. Oh. 
anyway, she was an eighth grader, and she was pretty nasty as an eighth grader. And we focused on her. You know, we focused on her behavior, on the fact that the two of them, she and my husband, couldn't get along. I referred to the first one as the children's father, and the second one is my ex-husband. Um, my ex-husband and she couldn't get along, and that's what we focused on. You know, We didn't focus on his drinking. We didn't focus on the fact he didn't come home at night. The fact of the matter is I see now that the God of my understanding has been, has been reaching out to me my entire life, but I've been so busy doing it myself and doing it my way and just sure that one more, you know, if I try it on Tuesday or if I try it, you know, in shorts or if I serve pork chops while I'm saying it or, you know, that I'm going to find the key and it's going to open the door and then we're going to be happy, you know. I, I've been so convinced of that that I haven't been able to see all the signs. What I, I see him now in retrospect and I see that he sent me exactly the kind of drunk I needed, you know. If he had sent me one of those drunks that came home and passed out in his chair at night, I'd probably still be out there because I'd have something physical to fill this hole that I had. But that and what he did, he sent me the one that didn't come home nights, you know. He sent me one that would say, what's for supper tonight, and then not show up till two days later, you know. And I'd be the one walking around the kitchen going, damn, if I told him we were having pork chops, he'd be home, you know. Just so sure I had a lot of control there, you know. Uh, he sent me exactly what I needed, and that's what I had was one that didn't come home nights. Through a long story that I'm going to spare you, uh, a lady found me. She found me where I work. And because I have a disease, the, the primary illusion in, in, of the Al-Anon disease is that when you're okay, then I'll be okay. And I do everything in my power to make you okay, because then I'll be okay. We look so loving and kind and considerate, and we want to fatten you up with all of our goodies. And, and uh, oh, we remember everybody's birthday, you know, and, oh, God, and we, we'll eat the neck, thank you, you know. So that <laughs> you can have the... You can have the big piece, you know. Oh, we don't mind the little room. It's okay, you know. <sighs> um, that's, our, that's our disease. The, the trouble w for you, you know, that looks real loving and kind, like it would be fine if half the population operated like that. The bad part about that deal is you have to be okay in my sight, you know. I'm the one that judges whether you're okay or not. And you can go, enough already. <laughs> Back off. And I go, no, oh, no, that's not enough. Let me do one more thing, you know. Can I do 12 more things for you? Uh, um, this lady called up and said, um, told me some stuff that her husband was an active, was a recovering alcoholic now, and they knew they owed us a lot of money, and they were going to pay us back, and she was crying. And I wanted to make her feel better. Jeez, I couldn't stand it when people were crying. So I told her a ball-faced lie. I said, I understand. My husband drinks too much. My husband did not drink too much. He just didn't come home at night. He'd even come home one night and said to me, you know what, we're just a bunch of old alcoholics. That's all we are. And I went, oh, no, you're not. I loved him too much for him to be alcoholic. Somebody who's loved as much as he is couldn't possibly be alcoholic. That's what it felt. But I lied to her. And little did I know that I was getting somebody who was fairly, or she had been in the program less than six months. And, oh, God, it was like Jim was talking about this morning, you know. I thought we were going to stand on the street corner and hand out pamphlets from the way she acted. You know, it, she was just so gung-ho the minute she heard that, that there might be a drinking problem in my house. She is now, what I understand, a black belt Al-Anon. <laughs> and I was the first notch in her belt, by God. <laughs> and she was not going to be happy till she dragged me into one of those places. And, and I fought it tooth and nail. Fought it tooth and nail. And I finally ended up at, at the psychologist's office at the school where I work. And all I could, you know... When I'd been in, in Al-Anon a little while, probably a year or so, somebody said in a meeting one time, she said, you know, I have discovered in this program that I have an absolute joy of living. She said, just like Ellen. Ellen has it too. And I went, I do? I thought I was just silly. You know? <laughs> I thought I'd just been silly my whole life. 
What I know now is that this joy I feel and that is so easy for me to share with you makes you laugh. It was my biggest defense when I got here. It was my greatest defect when I got here because I could keep you at arm's length. As long as I could keep you laughing, we didn't have to deal with the pain on the inside of me. As long as I could make you okay by making you laugh, then I was, that was as close to okay as I was going to get. By the time I got here, I couldn't even smile myself anymore, much less you smile. As a matter of fact, I'd gotten to where all I could do was cry. All I could do was cry. And the man, the doctor told me, he said, I don't have your answers, and the only people who might have them are the Al-Anons. And he didn't know her, you know. <laughs> this is somebody else. And I knew that. And I picked up the phone the next day, and I called her, and, and I know how they felt at Bataan. You know, I know about that forced march, because that's what it felt like. I felt like I was coming out of the jungle with my arms up surrendering to the enemy and I was going to be dragged off someplace and they were all going to point at me and and they were all going to realize that I couldn't do it that I was that I was that I was uh, there was something the matter with me because I couldn't make my family behave you know I couldn't make them be the way they were supposed to be um, so I thought I was coming to the island of misfit toys and when I got to that when I finally could see the steps on the wall what I saw was that indeed we were all defective because all of us were powerless you know, it, I, I swear to you, it took me until I got to the tenth step to finally understand that that's the way it was supposed to be <laughs> and that that's the way it was always going to be because I came here looking for power. You know, I came here for you to tell me how to do it. And all you'd say was, it's okay, babe, just keep coming back. It's okay, just keep coming back. And then I kept coming back. And when I'd been in the program about three years and, and, uh, and we had a real bad winter. And what I'll tell you is that, that my husband, uh, well, we got to do all of alcoholism in this marriage. We got to do the not coming home night. We got to do the not showing up for family things. We got to show, we got to do with the making a whole lot of money and then making no money. And we got to do the drugs. We got to do, um, the whole thing, you know, running into the garage, all that stuff. Uh, we also got to do affairs. And I discovered he was having an affair. The incredible thing about that is what really, I see in retrospect, got me into Al-Anon was not my husband's drinking. That's what it looked like, but that's not the truth. The truth is I was having an affair. I was married to the man of my dreams, the absolute man of my dreams, whom I adored. And yet when somebody had said to me, I want to have an affair, didn't come out, you know. The words marched across my head that said, not again, I don't want to do this again but I didn't have the power to say no. And I hated myself for it. Absolutely hated myself. Here I was again. What got me into Al-Anon was that I was as low as I could go. And I blamed it on my husband's drinking. Alcoholism. My share of the disease of alcoholism is what got me here. But it wasn't his drinking. My reaction to his drinking is what got me here. I discovered he was having an affair, and, you know, I talked about it already, but, but it was still a deep, dark, burning secret for me. And uh, I confronted him and told him that I knew about it, and my sponsor said, sweetie, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with you. It doesn't have anything to do with whether he loves you or doesn't love you. It's, he's a sick man, and he's got to do everything he can do to make himself feel better, and she's just something he's doing to make himself feel better, and, and God, I understood that, but he didn't understand that I understood that, you know. So he left home for a while, <clears throat> and it was the hardest time that I'd ever been through in my whole life. That was the absolute hardest time I'd ever been, and I'd had a couple of years of the program under my belt. 
he came home after uh, about a month. It was about all we could stand apart was about a month. And he, he uh, my sponsor's husband and my best friend in the, in the program's husband and another gentleman decided on their own that, because uh, I, I went to open a, a meeting. They loved me, just, you know, I was one of the little Al-Anons in the other room. And because I would laugh, you know, and I could make them laugh, the AAs would all pat me on the back and they'd go, oh, sweetie, you got too much personality for that room. Uh, 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 you know, and they'd say, we've got a chair with your name on it in the big room. Uh, 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 you know. <laughs> well, and you know, I've questioned that. I've, I've tried to figure out whether or not I really, am I alcoholic, you know? I got to where I had two drinks every night. God, I love those two drinks, too. They were really good, you know, those two drinks I had every night. But I've been through a couple of things in the last couple of years that I'll quickly share with you. And one of my my best friends is an AA lady, and she said to me, when you were going through that stuff, did it ever occur to you to go out and get drunk? And I said, no, that never occurred to me. She said, you're not alcoholic. <laughs> oh. You know, half of my reaction is, thank God. <laughs> the other half, half of my reaction is, darn. <laughs> oh, darn. <gasps> That's okay. Anyway, they decided on their own that this, they wanted to come 12-step him, so they came and they did that that night. And I went to bed and had the first good night's sleep I'd had in, in, in years because I knew he was exactly where he ought to be with exactly the people he ought to be with, you know. He came to bed hours later, and, and he waked me up, and he went, Oh, you're crying. And then he looked at me, and he went, You're sleeping. <laughs> so, he was so used to seeing me sl cry, you know. He had no idea that this, this was not crying time, boys. This was fun. Uh, two weeks later was, was New Year's Eve, and uh, as I was walking to bed, I touched myself, which was not a normal thing for me to do. But there had been a burning sensation since this whole thing had started a couple of months earlier right here. I had put off going for my yearly checkup. I had kept this burning sensation. I just couldn't deal with it. I was doing this, you know. I was doing this. Because I'm not going to get over this. I'm going to get better at this, and this isn't going to have to go on for so long. But I'm going to be an obsessive person. That's just who I am, you know. And if I stay here long enough, this won't kill me. What I discovered was a lump, a huge lump. And my first thought was I cannot tell him about this because he won't be able to handle it. He was two weeks sober. He was still shaking so bad he couldn't light his cigarettes. He had called me at work one day, and he said, Gosh, you'll never guess what happened. What happened? He said the salt and pepper shaker was falling out of the cabinet, and I caught it before it hit the counter. And he was so pleased with himself. I had no idea. I had no idea it was so bad. You know, it's not that bad. You know, that's what I'm saying. Well, it's not that bad. It was that bad, you know. This was one drunk fellow. Um, and I thought, I can't tell him. One more time, I'm going to be the responsible party. You know, one more time, I'm going to keep it from him. I have a little quote at home that I, I tell myself over and over again, and, and it is that um, keeping something from someone else for their own good is a responsibility to be shouldered only by the gods. I am, and they told me when I got here, they said the only thing you know, need to know about God is you're not him. You know, <laughs> so I knew that. Well, that's a long story, too. I know nothing but long stories because they say we're supposed to talk in a general way. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I've been explaining things for so long that, I, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing I haven't done that I can't explain, you know. <laughs> you just give me enough time. <laughs> and, and a little look in your eyes so I'll know which way you're going, you know, so I can go the other way. <laughs> I try. So what I end up doing is talking real fast. <laughs> try to get it on. Anyway, as you can guess, uh, that was the year of cancer. That was the year I got to do cancer. And uh, uh, the God of my understanding one more time said, this little girl doesn't want some of anything. You know, she wants everything. And I got to do everything. Uh, I got 
the, the lump was so big, the doctor said, it, it, it really must be something else. It really, you know, it probably isn't that. It's so big. So it took a while before they really started taking it seriously, and then I got the flu and, you know, and all that stuff happened. And me, who never gets sick, and I don't get colds. I just get cancer. And, you know, well, you know, I told you drama is my life. Um, I asked him to go with me to see the, the doctor for the second opinion because I had to admit by then that I was getting scared. That was big stuff for me to admit that I was getting scared. And so he went with me. Um, and, and that was two months after uh, he hadn't been drinking for two months. And he went with me to see the second doctor. And the second doctor said, well, you know, mammograms not showing. Mammograms are only accurate about 75% of the time anyway. And, and he said, it's not showing anything. But he said, I think you ought to just count on it being malignant and you ought to go on into the hospital. The next day, my husband came home drunk. And he's drunk to this day. And I understand that that's, you know, Tom, Tom shared that with me, and, and he's right. We usually are our best in crisis, you know. We can usually handle the big things. It's the little day-to-day -day stuff that, that uh, wears us down. But I think what was happening with him was that, that, you know, he'd go to meetings and tell people he was a wife-appointed alcoholic. He'd go to meetings and he'd say, tell me whether or not I'm alcoholic. And it, but he wasn't listening for the answer, you know. And he couldn't stay out of slippery places. He was still going to the bar on a real regular basis and hanging out with his buds in the bar. And I think it was this was one more little thing, maybe even that just I don't know what the deal was. All I know is he went back to drinking, and I got to do all the cancer. I got to do surgery. I got to do chemotherapy. I got to do radiation. And when the doctor in the hospital gave me the timetable that this was this the way this whole thing was going to do was going to take until December for me to get done with everything they wanted me to do. I told God, the God of my understanding, whom I was beginning to have a little bit of a relationship with at that point, I said, okay, here's the deal, God. I'll do cancer this year to humor you, but I am not doing it anymore, okay? This is it. So have at it. Um, they told me in the hospital that, that if 100 women had had the same diagnosis I had, that five years later, 60 of them would be left and 40 of them would be dead. I had a 60-40 chance of living five years. Um, I want to tell you, that I've discovered in the last couple of years that if I could go through that year again with the assurance that I would live through it and learn the same amount of things that I learned that year, I'd do it again. I have never been on such a trip, I assure you. For the first time in my life, I held up my hand and I said, I cannot do this by myself. For the first time, I was able to take my Al-Anon program. I was able to take my 12 steps and work them on a life-threatening disease. The only thing that I, the only way I know how to get through this life are the 12 steps. It's the only way. That is my easier, softer way. It's hard as hell. It's impossible the other way. This is my easier, softer way. I know because of the number of fourth and fifth steps I've done before then that I have a part in everything that happens to me. I am not the helpless victim. And I wanted to know what my part was in that time period when the tumor was growing. I wanted to learn the lesson. And the only way I know to do that is to do the steps. So some of my close friends in the program formed a step study, and we did a closed step study for about seven months. And I walked through that time period, and that's when I got to look at affairs, and that's when I got to see how long I had been part of an us but never a me. And uh, I learned a lot of things that year. What I learned is that cancer is a family disease, too. Cancer didn't just happen to me. It happened to everybody around me. And when I said, no, no, never mind, I can do it myself, I kept them from having to learn the lessons they needed to learn with cancer. 
And they would have to go find somebody else who had cancer and deal with that, you know. What I did was I, I answered an Al-Anon's prayer and I asked her if she'd run my life for a year. She was thrilled. <laughs> she got a card catalog, you know. <laughs> People would call and say, I want to help, I want to help, I want to help. And she got it all mapped out. And, and uh, you guys carried me through it. Absolutely, literally carried me through it. On the nights that I, after I would have a chemo treatment, my best friend in the program, who was the only one who did throw up, would come and spend the night with me. I mean, nobody can help you throw up. You know that, you know. It's a... It's a nasty job by yourself, and it's, it's not a lot of fun when people are watching, you know, but, but, uh, but see, he passed out those nights before I did. He'd come home, and, and most of the time he was drunk, but he'd come home, you know, and he'd lay in the bed beside me. At least my lump was there, you know. I would not have made it through that year without him, drunk, even drunk. He was important, so important, and I'm so grateful for every minute we had of that. But I'm real grateful Jan was in the living room, so if something really bad happened, I had somebody there. Um, the, at my first chemo treatment, I threw up for 12 straight hours. The uh, nurse called the next morning, and she said, well, I did, how did it go? And I said, I don't know if you know our Just for Today. We have a little pamphlet, a Just for Today pamphlet. And, and what I said to her, I said, well, I just checked my watch and realized it had been 12 hours, you know. I said, I can do anything for 12 hours. It would appall me if I had to keep it up for a lifetime. <laughs> she didn't get it. <laughs> I got it. The next week, I went back to the doctor for a little booster shot, and, and he said, how do you feel? And I said, God, I have never felt so good in my whole life. He said, you never had anything to compare it to before. This is true. People shouldn't have to do chemotherapy. That's nasty business. Um, if you've got to give up a body part, give up boob. Really. You know, if you've got to make a choice, go for that one. You know, it doesn't impair your walking or anything you do with your hand or, you know, any of that stuff. Um, at my age, all it's good for is holding up clothes anyway. And <laughs> you can do the same thing with styrofoam or, you know. I, I, I have friends who've done it, done it with hose. You know, they've done it with, with pantyhose. The problem with that is you can't hug people real tight on that, <laughs> on that side. Otherwise, you walk in a little concave over there. <laughs> so you, you have to learn to hug this way. Which is, that's a lot of trouble. Um, but the boob was not the big deal, you know, it just wasn't a big deal. Um, I, I looked like uh, I was 12 years old on one side and, and a grown woman on the other, 42 long on one side, you know, and, and, uh, and this straight line on the other. Um, I did, it became real important to me to know why those 60 women stayed and those 40 women died that had the same prognosis I had. And I did a lot of talking. You know what I discovered? The people who survived were the people who shared their experience, strength, and hope with other people who suffered. Isn't that amazing? They were the people who didn't keep it a secret. They were people who let other people help them. Their MOs before the cancer were a lot like mine. Thank you, fine, I'll do it by myself. The nurturing, loving kind who take everything literally to heart. One of the things that I discovered that year was that no one else I have no family history of breast cancer. There's no reason for me to have breast cancer, you know, except I get to diagnose that. Just like you guys get to diagnose your alcoholism, I got to diagnose that. There are studies that show that cancer is a stress-related disease. The cancer I had was a, a stress-caused disease. It was my reaction. That's what it was. Well, luckily I got a doctor who who was sleeping the day they taught in class that you're supposed to say, I don't know, you know. He, he would say to me every once, I'd say, well, this happened and this happened and this happened. And, and I'd say, what's going to happen next? And he said, I don't know. I just don't know. 
That's real scary. I got down that year to the, to the knowledge that nobody had my answers. You'd already told me you didn't have my answers. Now the doctors didn't have my answers. Who had my answers? Scariest of all, I'm the only one with them. I was at an AA conference that summer, and I, and I was uh, several months into chemo, and I'd lost all my hair except, for, of, course, of course, for the gray. And it looked like fried nerve endings, as it was. <laughs> I had about 15 extra pounds on me from the steroids and the, uh, and the chemo, which didn't make me <laughs> stronger. It just made me <laughs> bigger, you know. And, uh, and, I, and I'd left the house one day to uh, go up to the nursery and buy something to plant in the yard, and I had my little hat on, you know, to protect these few little things from blowing around and protect you from having to look at it, when I realized I had to go back in the house and shave my legs. That was the day I got the joke. When I realized that I had to go shave my legs, a lot of pieces started coming together. I realized that I also had to shave under my arms, but I no longer had a mustache. And I didn't have eyelashes, and I didn't have eyebrows, and I didn't have hair on my head. The God of my understanding was holding his sides, rolling around the floor of heaven. <laughs> he was hysterical. <laughs> and I laughed. I said, okay, God, I get it, I get it, I get it. Hair was a big deal. It was hard to lose hair. You don't, you know, you don't count boobs when you look in a mirror, but you do tend to look at the top of your head, you know. Anyway, I was at this AA conference where they all loved me with my hats. You know, they loved me with my hats. And I was sitting in a room with my sponsor, and music was playing, and I was into, <laughs> poor me. And she said, uh, I said, my husband would love that music. And she said, oh, my husband would too. They're just alike. Oh, and that really did me, you know. I went, oh, no, they're not. <laughs> Your husband is sober and mine's not. And I did this whole thing, you know, which was poor Cecil. He'll never get sober and all he can do is die and go insane, you know. And I was doing this whole thing. Well, see, the underlying thing in all this stuff, the underlying feeling in everything I do is, but what about me? But what's going to happen to me? And that was the feeling. If I don't have him, I'll die. If I don't, and that was, that's what I got when I did the fourth and fifth step on the way it felt when I went through that time the tumor was growing. He was having an affair. If I can't have him, I'll die. Sounds insane, but my, my, my body doesn't have a mind. My body just does whatever this crazy thing up here tells it. And this thing up here will kill me. It will absolutely kill me. Let me tell you, my disease is as fatal as anybody else's. And it's all right in here. So I cried a few minutes about poor me. And about that time, my husband's sponsor walked in the room. And God love you who are married to Al-Anon sponsors. Um, he doesn't do tears. He especially does not do Al-Anon tears. And he does not do Al-Anon tears on some little woman in this little fat woman in the dirt, you know. Um, and he said, just passing through. And she said, no, no, no. I believe you'll come over here and sit with Ellen and hold her. I believe that's what you'll do. I don't want him to hold me. For one thing, I was real busy feeling sorry for myself, by God. And I didn't want somebody else there to touch me. I was real, you know, I know how to feel sorry for myself, and that's what I wanted to do. He came over and sat and gave me one of these hugs, you know. <laughs> oh, here. <laughs> we don't have to get real close to him, you know. And <laughs> just sort of touch him like that. And we both did a whole lot of, geez, I wish I wouldn't hear it. Nobody said that, but you know, we were both thinking that. I know it. Somehow it changed. There is magic in here. And somehow... Halfway through that, it changed. And he put his arms around me, and I put my arms around him. And I smiled, and I sobbed the happiest tears I had cried in a long time because I was so grateful Bob Wildman was sober. God, I was grateful. I was so glad that there was such a thing as sobriety, and one person was sober. And it changed. There are very few events in this program. 
This is a process place. I don't like that, but that's the way it is. I'm an event person, you know. I'll be happy when. But that was an event. And that was magic. That was absolute magic. Now, one more thing I have to tell you. We discovered when my daughter was 16 the reason why she and my, my ex-husband didn't get along. She's an alcoholic. She'd started drinking and using in the eighth grade. Amazing. The eighth grade was too painful for her, even. <laughs> the drugs didn't work, let me tell you. Um, she went to inpatient treatment. I, I offered my daughter the only thing I know that works, and that's a 12-step program. That's the only thing I know that works, and that's what I offered her. And it took her a while, but she, she finally took it. And we had a wonderful year. When she graduated from high school that year, her sponsor came to graduation. And, and it wasn't such a big deal to me that my daughter was graduating from high school. I mean, she's a, she's a bright kid, you know, and, and she was, she's beautiful. And, and uh, that, wasn't, that wasn't so emotional to me. But when I turned around and saw her sponsor in the audience, I just boohooed because I thought, oh, God, maybe she's going to make it, you know, maybe she's going to make it. Um, that summer she moved out and her life went to hell in a handbasket. She didn't start using, I don't think, I don't know, she says she didn't, but then I always believe what they say, you know. Um, she came home to live for a couple of weeks and I did rules. You know, you're not going to meetings, I can't live with somebody who is active in this disease and not going to meetings cause, because by then I knew that my reaction to this disease will kill me. It will kill me. I had gone and had reconstructive surgery. These are mine. I paid $15,000 for them. <laughs> you can hug me just as tight as you want. <laughs> They're wonderful. The first thing I ever did for myself that I wouldn't die if I didn't do, you know, I did them because I wanted to be the best me I could be, and I did this. But what I learned out of that experience was that my peace of mind is the most important thing in my life. I used to think you guys were shooting real low when you talked about praying for serenity. Let's go for ecstasy and bliss, guys, you know. What I learned was the serenity is where my peace of mind is and the joy comes after that. And, oh, the joy is what I want. You know, that's what I want. So um, I told her that peace of mind was my deal, and she couldn't come and stay there. We had to have rules, and you have to do your part, and if you don't do your part, you can't live here ever again the rest of your life, never. The end. You know, black and white. That's the way we do it. She couldn't do it. Surprise, 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 she couldn't do it. I was leaving to go to the Crested Butte Mountain Conference, and she came and threw herself across my bed. I'd had the lock changed the night before. I'd cried for three days because I didn't want her to leave. I wanted her to get straight. I wanted her to be happy. I didn't want her life to be so horrible. You know, it's one thing when you've got parents that are that are maybe alcoholic. It's another thing to have a spouse that you absolutely live for who's alcoholic. But, geez, when it's your kid, that's a piece of me right there. And I ached when she ached, you know. And I could see how miserable she was. And I knew that it didn't have to be that way for her. And I didn't want her to leave. But I also knew that I couldn't live if she didn't. See, in that interim of time, what I'd had to do is tell my husband that if he couldn't get sober, he couldn't stay there. I'd never had the courage to do that before. And he couldn't get sober. And October 4th of 1984 is when he left. That's the last night I ever slept with an active alcoholic. And he hadn't been back since then. He called me once a couple of years ago, and he said uh, he was drunk enough to call, but not so drunk he didn't hang up, you know. And, um, yeah, see, I know when it's you on the phone. <laughs> I know when you're there. Um, and he said to me, he said, you know, how are you? Are you okay? I said, I'm, I am the healthiest person you know. God, I'm healthy. He said, are you sure? I said, yeah, I'm sure. He said, the cancer was all my fault. I said, no, it wasn't your fault. See, he's looking to buy another drink is what he's looking to do. I didn't sell it to him. Absolutely didn't sell it to him. I'd done my fourth and fifth step, and I said, sweetie, I love you, and I'll always love you. But that was my reaction. You didn't do that. Well, now, here's my daughter, 
and I'm kicking her out. And I'm leaving for Crested Butte in the morning. She came and threw herself across my bed while I was packing the, the car, and she said, Mom, I have something to tell you. She said, you're going to be a grandmother. Now, I want you to get the wording there. She did not say, I am pregnant. You are going to be the grandmother. You know, the responsible party. The only thing that guy ever said to me was, like your car. <laughs> For all I know, that's all he said to her, but... <laughs> that did not make me the responsible party. But I was scared to death it did. I was scared to death that it was going to make it different. I was scared to death it meant that now she was going to have to stay with me. I was scared to death, I, literally scared to death, that I was going to have to live with her now. So I threw my program out the window. How can you do this to me? How can you do this to yourself? What's the matter with you? All those things I used to say, they all came out. And it took a couple of hours before I was finally in enough pain that I did the one thing I didn't want to do, which was to call my sponsor, because I knew what she was going to say. I knew she was going to say, well, it changes it. She's going to have to stay there now. And I called her up, and my sponsor said, she can't stay there, and I will stay on the phone while you tell her. And it quit hurting. I have a sponsor now that's the sponsor I have I've wanted my whole life, and it's taken me eight years in this program to get the courage up to ask her. <laughs> and uh, she says, you know, it always hurts to hold on to something that it's time to let go of. It's time to let go of her. And I put her stuff out on the back step, and I locked the door, and I left. And she went crazy. And we had a terrible winter, and she called and, and told me that people couldn't believe how cruel I was being because I wouldn't let her come live with me. And, and I learned in this program that we make decisions as small children and then we, li we live from them. And I get real rigid and I was real black and white and I couldn't change any of those rules. Melissa couldn't change the rules in her life either because Melissa's an adopted child. And evidently she made a decision as a small child that if she ever had a baby, she'd never give it up. She didn't have a choice about having this baby. She was going to have this baby. This is another terribly long story. See, my life is just full of those. Um... In January, we were, things were okay with us. The baby was due in April, and she, I was knitting a blanket by that point, and she had said, I know what kind of grandmother you're going to be because she knows how I am with babies. God, I love babies, you know. All I ever wanted was babies. I didn't want 17-year-olds, you know. I just wanted babies, you know. But mine lived. <laughs> um, she was about to turn 19. She would turn 19 in March, and the baby was due in April. And she called me up and she said, Mom, I went and had a sonogram done today. And you know that blue blanket you're knitting? You're going to have to knit a whole lot faster because there's two of them. There's two baby boys. My 18-year-old daughter was going to raise twin boys. She who didn't even want a doll when she was a kid, you know. She really didn't want it, but she didn't have the sanity of a choice. That's what step two offers me today. The sanity in step two is choices. I have choices. She didn't have any. The day the babies were born, I was at the hospital. Of course I was. I told the nurses I'd never seen a newborn baby before because both of my children are adopted. I have a precious son and, and, and this daughter that I absolutely adore, but who does indeed alter my mind. And I said, could I see them when they're, when, they're, when, they're just, when they're new? Can I go touch them? And they said, oh, God, yes, you can. A friend of mine in the program had called the hospital that day. She lived in the little town where Melissa was in the hospital and found out that the babies were coming right then. And she said, I'll be right there. And she came over to be with me, you know. And uh, when the babies were about five minutes old, the nurses said, come on, Grandma, come on in. And they let me go in there, and they put me in a gown, and they let me hold my grandson. 
they let me give him his first bottle. Oh, God, it was ecstasy. I was absolutely in heaven. I was so happy. I was crying, you know, I was crying. And my friend was standing outside the window, and she was crying, you know. We were so happy, you know. God, we were happy. And I looked at this little guy, and he was, and I, and I said, I told her, I said, get him a chip. <laughs> He'd take a suck and he'd scream, and he'd take a suck and he'd scream, and I knew what he was thinking, because I know what you guys are thinking most of the time. He was thinking, it didn't used to be this hard where I was before, and I don't like it here. <laughs> well, by the time we took the babies home five days later, we knew that the little twin had... Uh... See, what, I, what had happened is this program has allowed me to make some great choices, because my peace of mind is the most important thing in my life. When I found out it was twins, I said, sweetie, if you were 27 and married someplace and having twins, I'd go to you. I mean, this is going to be impossible by yourself. I'd rather know where you are than where you're not. So come and stay with me until you learn how to jump that rope. And then you can take your babies and leave. And she said, oh, God, I'd love it. So she, she moved in with me for about a week, and then she spent about a month in the hospital before they were born. So we were taking the babies home. And uh, the doctor and the, the heart doctor had come up on a Sunday to the hospital to see my youngest, my littlest grandson and my youngest by two minutes. Um, because they had discovered he had a hole in his heart. And it was, it was a big deal. It was a big hole in his heart. The doctor looked at me and they said, well, you have your mother go on and take him home. I found out a couple of weeks later that he weighed 4.0 pounds the day we took him home from the hospital. Oh, God, I'm glad they didn't tell me that then. You know, I don't do three-pound babies. But I took this guy home. Three weeks later, he went into heart failure. And uh, Melissa couldn't deal with it. She said, it's not that bad. You know, she has the same kind of disease. And I said, no, there's something the matter. And we took him to the hospital, and they looked at him, and they said, yeah, he's in heart failure. And we'll give him some medicine, and we could keep him at the hospital, but you've got your mom. It's okay. Take him home. We took him home. And three weeks later, my daughter said to me, Mom, I can't do this. I cannot do this. I'm going to have to give him up. But see, I already loved him. You know, and you know how we are. God, I love those babies. Oh, I loved them. I always wanted a dark-haired, blue-eyed child. I didn't get them. I got a green-eyed, blonde-haired one. I got a brown-eyed, brown-haired one. And here are two blue-eyed, dark-haired babies. And they're boys. God, I couldn't raise another girl either, you know. But I, had, I got to make the choice. If this was nine years ago, I wouldn't have had the choice. I would have had to keep those babies. And I told her, I said, I, maybe you can give them up, but I don't know if I can. And I had to go through a period, and God knew exactly how long that period was. Her time was up. My time was not up yet. She signed some uh, power of attorney papers and she moved out. And that was our decision to do that. And I said, you know what? My, my sponsor has promised me that God's promise to me in this program is this or something better. That God wants for me what it is I want for me. He wants me to be happy, joyous, and free. I didn't believe that for a very long time. And it's taken the twins for me to know that that's true. Because I thought that God wanted me to be good. I thought God wanted me to be perfect. I thought that's what he wanted. So what I wanted more than anything in the world was to be those, those babies' grandmom. More than anything, I wanted to be their grandmother. But I didn't want to be their mother. Those children are the children of two addicts. And I don't like those odds. And I don't want to do that again. I can't do that again. It'll kill me. But I didn't want to give up being their grandma. So I took the steps in that direction. What we found out was that the little one had even more trouble. He, he may have some things the matter with him that won't ever get right. One of the things they suspected when they looked at him was fetal alcohol syndrome. But that's not what it is. 
I think, and one more time, I'm diagnosing this disease, but one more, what I think we're looking at is the effects of drugs on the next generation. Those guys, my daughter may have been straight when that was going on, but the, the father was not. And we don't know what it's going to, we don't know what crack's going to do. We don't know what it's going to look like. We don't know what the combination of some of these things are going to look like. And I think that's what we're seeing in my grandson. They ended up, uh, when the doctor said he thought there were some more things the matter with him, I made the decision to keep him until we knew what was the matter with him. Because I wanted him to go from me to the person they were going to live with. I didn't want him going to foster care. I didn't, you know, what I've learned in this program is I have to live with me tomorrow and the next year and ten years from now. And my sponsor says, think about it. Think, think, think. But don't think about the same old stuff. Look what it is, what your choices are, and think how you're going to feel about it tomorrow and, and a year from now and ten years from now. And are you going to say to yourself, geez, I wish I hadn't done that again? Or are you going to say, gosh, I'm glad I got to do that because I'll never get the chance again? I mean, I can tell you how, that, how many times that saved my life. And I knew that I needed to feel like I'd done the very best job by these guys I could do. So I, looked, I went looking at adoption agencies because I wasn't going to play God in their life either. People were writing me from all over the country that wanted these babies. And I said, no, I can't do that. I can't pick somebody. So I went to adoption agencies, and I said, we're looking for a couple that wants two babies and a grandmother. <laughs> or a package. You're not going to get one of them. You're not, you're, you're not going to get two of them. You're going to get all three of us, and that's the way we're coming. And that's the way I walked. And I found them. I found Lutheran Services. And they had a couple that was magic. They had just been approved like a week earlier who didn't flinch when they found out there were two babies, didn't flinch when they found out that the little one had some maybe real serious troubles, didn't flinch when they found out that they were five months old because I kept them for three months by myself. Not a problem here. Adolescent son, full-time job, two babies, one that has a heart trouble and is a little difficult to feed, but no problem here. Uh, didn't flinch when they found out that this grandma wanted to stay involved. She's older. Ruby's older than I am. God, isn't that amazing? She's older than I am. And Don's uh, 34 now. Um, they never had kids. And they took us. Let me tell you how that story comes out. <sighs> I'm the grandma. Cameron and Adrian were uh, 23 months old last Thursday. They'll be two years old on the 15th of March. I see them about every three weeks. Cameron and Adrian kept the names Melissa gave them. One of my worst fears was that they were going to turn into somebody I didn't know. They kept the names Melissa gave them, and they gave them two more. Cameron is not just Cameron Barrett Fair. He's Jonathan Douglas Cameron Barrett Fair. And Ruby got all of that on their Social Security card, and she really had to deal with those folks, but by God, that's what she wanted, by God. And she got it. They have both called me Grandma. Both of my grandsons have called me Grandma. They know me when they see me. Their faces light up when they see me. I, I, we usually meet at a restaurant between the two little towns where we live because they, they are not comfortable yet having me at their house, and that's okay. My sponsor said I have to leave them in control of this situation. I can't tell you how hard that's been. I just can't tell you how hard that's been. But uh, the hardest thing I did, see what happened was a year to the day after Melissa told me I was going to be a grandmother, she and I and my son and my grandsons went in the car to the Lutheran services and we handed them over to their new parents. I got to put Adrian in Ruby's arms. And we stood up and we held hands and we said the Lord's Prayer. You know, God gives me those little messages. The only way I understand God is, is through your voice. 
That's the only way I understand, and I knew exactly what he was telling me, you know. And uh, uh, we meet in this little town in a restaurant, and then we go, now that the boys are big enough to walk and talk and do all the stuff that they do, we go and play in a church there that has a, a place to play. And they call me Grandma. And just before Christmas, I saw them, and I took them Christmas presents, and they brought me Christmas presents. I have a charm that says Extra Special Grandma that they bought me for my birthday. And they brought me Christmas presents. And they didn't get to see Melissa and Mari because they were both working, my son and my daughter. And they said, we'd like to see you a little closer to Christmas time. And as it turned out, Christmas Eve was the best time. So they came Christmas Eve to my house, and they brought the boys. And a friend of mine came by in the program, a girl I sponsor, and she took a picture of our whole family, Melissa and Mari and Ruby and Don and Cameron and Adrian and me, our whole family. And that's what Ruby says when she sees the picture. She goes, look, it's our whole family. Here we all are. How did that happen? You know, if I designed it, it wouldn't have been that good. It would not have been that good. And Ruby said to me the next week, she said, Don and I have been talking, and we always have to go to his family's house on Christmas Day, but what we'd like to do from now on is we'd like to make Christmas Eve at Grandma's house an every year thing. Can you imagine? I don't know about the God of your understanding, but mine just boggles. My daughter got a chip about two weeks ago. Came home drunk again. And I said, so? And the next day she called and she said, geez, I'm sorry, Mom, I don't know why I do that. I said, sure you do, sweetie. Sure you do. And she's going to meetings. She's been going to meetings. You know, the, the, the thing for me there is if she doesn't go to any more meetings, if she gets drunk again, my daughter knows the way out. She knows the way out. I've given her everything I have to give her as far as that's concerned. I want to close with one, with two things. I used to think that when I died and went to heaven, God was going to say, there's Ellen. What the hell have you been doing? Pull in the VCR and let's get the tape on her husband and those kids. I want to see how they turned out. And if they turned out to be fine, upstanding members of the community, she did a good job and she can get into heaven. And really, that's what I thought was going to happen, you know. What they told me when I was new in the program, somebody said, uh, you know what's going to happen is, is God's going to decide it's time to work on your husband and he's going to send an angel to the file cabinet to get his file. And the angel's going to have to come back and say, oh, I'm sorry, the file's gone or his wife has it. <laughs> so I've been, uh, it's been a process of me putting back the files of everybody I love, you know. I know today what's going to happen because you have given me the most wonderful God. When I die and get to heaven, he's going to go, Oh, Ellen, where have you been? I have missed you so. Do you know that heaven is not complete without you? It is not complete. I need you here, sweetie. I need you here. And he's going to say, Now, sweetie, i got a couple of questions for you. And these, this is not a test. You can't fail this. I'm just curious. I'm sort of taking a poll. Did you have a good time? Did you enjoy all the wonderful things there were for you to do? Did you go all those places you got invited to go to? Or did you say, oh, no, I'm sorry, that's too scary, I can't go? Did you finally enjoy? See, we have six flags where I live. And I used to think that you paid this huge big price at the gate. My price was guilt and, and pain. And that once you got through paying this big price, then you could get in and ride all the rides for free. And I was waiting for the day when I would have paid enough, you know, and I could get in and ride the rides for free, then I'd be happy. Well, what I've discovered is life is indeed Six Flags. But everybody knows what it costs when you get to the gate. You're not surprised. You don't go to Six Flags and go, $30? I had no idea. You know, we know it costs a lot of money to get in Six Flags. We go, we come equipped with everything we need. 
And once you get into Six Flags, most of what it is is walking between the rides and standing in line. And being with the people you went with. If you don't enjoy walking between the rides and standing in line or the people you went with, you're going to have a bad day at Six Flags, you know? <laughs> the rides are sort of like the icing on the cake, and some of those rides are real scary, and I don't want to ride them all, you know? I don't choose to do that. Did you have a good time? You know, there was no reason for those flowers to be beautiful except to make you happy. There was no reason for you to smile every time you heard a baby laugh, except that it made you happy, and I knew it would, and that's why I did that, just so I could make you happy. And then he's going to say, did you get the joke? <laughs> now, I shared with you that I got the joke. I lived my whole life saying it's not that bad because I thought it was so bad that if I looked at it, it would kill me. That's the way it felt. But through your love, the steps of this program, and the grace of God, I have learned to look at the monsters. I've looked at the scariest things in my life, and you know what I found out? It's not that bad. Thank you. <laughs>